please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I have mentioned to you a couple of reasons for the pause in our study of Revelation. One, we will continue to meet these angelic beings throughout the apocalypse. They are principal characters and actors. And so it seemed good to advance our knowledge in the study concerning them. Also, Angelology is, among Reformed people, a neglected discipline. Among some sorts and varieties of Christians, they are much studied, much considered, but among Reformed people, not so much. De-emphasized, and in this area we probably tend to um, err by neglect, by defect as they say but these were not my only reasons about a month ago I had a blast from my past I was signing on to my email account and there is a little news feed tells me some of the main stories of the day and I stumbled across a story that reminded me of my early days in the faith Going back now, almost 20 years, I used to listen to a radio talk show hosted by a man named Bob Larson. At the time, he was very much interested in um, rock music and getting people away from rock music and uh, cults. Although, towards the end of the time that I was listening, he was also becoming very interested in demonology. 
and uh, this was becoming a major emphasis. After my introduction to Reformed Christianity, uh, my interest took me other places and I simply lost touch with his ministry. Well, Bob Larson, all these years later, turned up on my newsfeed. He had been interviewed by uh, Anderson Cooper, who is a television journalist and he was being interviewed because he was training teenagers to exercise demons and this has become the principal focus of his of his ministry demonology and exorcism attached to this news feed there was a a video of an exorcism that he performed and frankly this appeared to be almost a completely different religion. Very different than the way I had come to know Christianity. I was a bit surprised to see him use both a Bible. By this I don't mean the Word of God read and preached. I just mean the book, the cardboard, paper and ink is something like a talisman to torment the demon that was inhabiting uh, the person. In addition to this, he used a cross and the woman who was purported to be possessed would writhe as these things uh, approached her. He would, he would wave his Bible and command angels to do various things. He waved his Bible and said, I put an angel on your right hand. And he waved his Bible again and said, I put an angel on your left hand. And uh, so on. These things were part of my uh, charismatic upbringing. But now they seemed very strange in my eyes. As I said, so strange that it seemed to be a different religion altogether. Some years ago, uh, after I was first introduced to uh, Reformed things, and I had my whole life grown up hearing people saying that they take dominion over devils and cast out devils and they command devils to do this thing and that thing. And then I read Jonathan Edwards and there was a very different perspective that I found much easier to defend from the Bible. Edwards said that the devil is too powerful for us. His intelligence far surpasses our own and his power, his ability to do things according to his uh, angelic nature almost defies our comprehension. He He does things and we can scarcely understand how such a thing is possible. He hardly seemed like this weak, contemptible imp that could simply be commanded by a human being to do this thing or that thing. And then as I went further along in the Reformed teaching, I was much comforted by the fact that this great being was very much under God's government and under his restriction. You see this, and we'll come back to this text in later sermons. You you see this very much in Job chapters 1 and 2. You see his great power. Everything that God gives him permission to do, he seems more than capable of doing. God says, okay, you can uh, take what the man has, but you cannot touch the man. 
And the devil is more than capable of taking everything that Job had and did it in short order. And then when God said that he could touch the man but not take his life, he seemed more than capable of touching the man and afflicting him with disease. And when we think of such an adversary, it's somewhat frightening so to consider him. But there's also good news in Job chapters 1 and 2 that very much like the ocean, God sets him in bounds and he could not transcend his bounds. He could not touch God, touch Job until God gave him leave to do so. You remember the devil's initial complaint. You have set a hedge about him. I cannot make any sort of approach. He was not able to touch Job until God gave him permission to do so. And then, you see, only to the extent that God gives him permission to do so. He could take all that the man had, but he couldn't touch the man until God gave permission to touch the man. And then only so far up to the taking of his life. And so the Reformed idea was that angels and demons are under the government of God, not under ours. Indeed, they are much too much for us, much too strong for us. We are going to consider some of the the aspects of their spiritual nature, some of their uh, attributes. But before doing so, just a brief review of the doctrine as we've already covered it. Remember that man's knowledge of angels is limited to what has been revealed in Scripture. And we are warned uh, not to pry into things that we don't understand and things that have not been revealed. Second, although angels are great creatures, they are nonetheless just creatures. And on this side of the divide with us, there is an infinite and unbridgeable chasm between the Creator and the creatures, and the angels are on the side of the chasm with us. And finally, uh, last time we were together, we saw that they are... Um, incorporeal spirits on balance as we consider the scripture they do not appear to have any sort of material body although they are related to space and time and limited to it this morning I wanted to look at uh, take up three doctrines and look at three different uh, attributes of these angels these are their spiritual attributes the first doctrine is that angels are immortal turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20 Luke chapter 20 Verse 35. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. 
here the resurrected saints are likened unto the angels in several ways. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, and neither can they die anymore. In other words, they are immortal. When we consider our frame such as we are now, we say that the body, the body is mortal. It dies and it returns to the ground. But we would say that the spirit of man is immortal. It does not die. When the body dies, the spirit returns to God who gave it. And judgment is pronounced. As it is said in the scripture, it is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. In this regard, uh, men are like angels. Angels are immortal spirits. But here I would like to draw a distinction between uh, the angels and the divine being. God is properly said to be eternal. Now here I use the word eternal properly speaking, which is he is not temporal. He is not defined in categories of time and space. As a matter of fact, God, uh, God's existence was antecedent to the creation of material bodies. And remember, matter is necessary for the proper definition of time and space. God was before all of this, and so God alone is properly eternal. That is, non-temporal, not defined in terms of time. Properly speaking, sometimes we use the word uh, eternal improperly, and what we mean is everlasting. It goes on and on. The angels are everlasting in this regard. They did have a time when they were created. So there was a time when they were not, and then a time in which they were made. And from that time, and for countless days thereafter, they continue to live. But they never do become eternal. Their existence will ever be defined by time, by their first beginning, and the present moment. That will be the definition of their existence with respect to time. And you can add time to it, another billion years or something like that, but their existence will ever be defined by time, their beginning, their first creation, and right now, whenever now happens to be. In this, I I draw this difference because throughout this sermon series, even while we highlight some of the, um, uh, the greatness of the angelic beings, and they are great relative to us, but they are much more like us than they are like the divine being. The divine being is on the other side of the chasm. And God alone is glorified as the one eternal and there is none other like unto him the angels are like unto us immortal and everlasting spirits but uh, not eternal as God is to God alone be the glory our second doctrine which will take up most of our time is that angels are rational creatures they are intelligent beings they have uh, understanding in this regard they are like men 
Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We break in here on Peter mid-thought, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter is talking about the prophets of old, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. There are at least three things we learn about angels here that are very uh, important, two of which we will have to take up later. Uh, One, we learn that they are also uh, volitional creatures. They desire things. Here we're told one of their great desires is to look more closely into matters pertaining to the gospel. They long to see God glorified in His grace and mercy, which is displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We also see something about um, their interest. They are beings that are intensely interested in their God. And in this display of these precious attributes, grace and mercy among men, But third, which is our consideration here, is that they're seeking a fuller understanding of these things. So we see in this a proof and demonstration that they are intelligent creatures. They long to look into these things. They don't have eyes. They don't look into these things with their eyeballs. But rather they look into these things with the eyes of the mind, if you will. They want to understand them more exactly. So like men, they are understanding creatures. But we would say by comparison, they are of a much greater understanding. Uh, To this end, I'll cite a text you'll know very well, but might seem strange here. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus here speaks of future things, things pertaining to his coming. And he says, no man knows the hour. And then he says, uh, I say it's strange because here he cites angelic ignorance. Not even the angels know this. But if you understand the comparison, Jesus is implying that the angels are of a much greater understanding. He said, no man knows it. Indeed, more. No angel knows it. And in the parallel text, he says not even he himself, according to his human nature at that time, not even he knew it. So he goes up an ascending tree of beings of greater understanding. And the angels are portrayed as being of a greater understanding than we are. With respect to the holy angels, we would call this understanding wisdom. The holy angels are wise. Compared to us, they seem almost unspeakably wise. Remember what wisdom is, biblically speaking. Wisdom is the ability to 
choose the proper end or goal and then knowing the means that are required in order to carry out that in order to achieve that end or goal the angels are wise in this regard and we would say according to their kind perfectly wise they have just the right amount of wisdom that they ought to have as angels at any given time in other words there's not been any sinfulness to inhibit their proper development their wisdom in its kind is perfect but we would say God alone is infinitely wise knowing all things knowing all ends and knowing exactly the perfect means for the accomplishment of all of his designed ends with respect to the fallen angels with respect to demons and devils we might call this intelligence cunning craftiness or the scripture calls it the wiles of the devil put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil Ephesians 6 11 you no doubt know the scriptures well enough to know that the devil's principal weapon uh, more than his ability to do things in nature is his ability to deceive from the very beginning he is described as a deceiver as the Lord Jesus said he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning Uh, in our second sermon series we'll have occasion to brush upon this topic he is the father of something that is called the mystery of iniquity Uh, iniquity so dark and so deep that it is very difficult for human beings to understand it to apprehend it to see the lie in it Uh, so he is a very cunning deceiver in this regard we even see the exercise of some of his ability think about the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and how cunning the devil was in the use of the scripture Uh, sometimes uh, a word dropped out or a phrase dropped or an application that is just a little off he's cunning a cunning deceiver in this regard so we see in this the greatness of angelic intellect Believe it or not, whole books have been written on how angels know what they know. Ultimately, having reviewed some of this literature, I can say that it's hard to know how they know what they know or what the means of cognition is because their means of cognition is very different than ours. We are created with a uh, a rational faculty, you might call it a logical uh, apparatus in our brains that processes information, but the information is provided by the senses, by sense experience. You see things, you hear things. This is even the way that we learn the Word of God. We see it and read it on the page, or we hear it read and preached and that information goes into the logical apparatus of the brain for processing but it's hard to know how they know what they know when they don't have senses 
So they don't gain information by sense experience. They gain it in some other way that after having looked at the uh, body of literature, I'm not sure that anybody knows for sure. I am quite sure that I don't know how uh, they might know what they do. But um, a, um, the capacity for understanding need not be created in only one way. And it seems that theirs was created in a different way. But we are told in, um, in Scripture some of the ways that they gain the information although we're not sure how it gets into their rational apparatus. One way or another, they do contemplate the works of God. And they learn in this way. We see this already in our text. I had you open to 1 Peter 1.12 for this very reason. They desire to look into these things. They observe God's work in Jesus Christ for the salvation of men. And they learn by observing it. Let me read to you another text. You'll know this one well too. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. So angels were interested witnesses in the career of the Lord Jesus Christ. They seemed to constantly attend him throughout his uh, career. And now we've learned both from uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 and Peter that they are very interested observers. They observe and they want to learn and understand these things more thoroughly, no doubt so that they might worship God with greater understanding and thus glorify Him. So we know at least one way that they uh, learn. They learn by contemplating the works of God. And another way that they learn is by uh, immediate revelation from God himself. Uh, They do not appear to know the future, but sometimes they come and declare the future, having had the future given to them by God himself. I've recently been studying the book of Daniel with old Andrew Willett, and you see this over and over again in the book. We'll come to this. Angels don't know everything. And they don't know the future, at least not any more than maybe a human being might be able to guess it based on processes that are in motion. Uh, But frequently the angels come with their mouths full of revelation concerning future things. I've recently been in uh, Daniel chapter 11. This is a revelation given to Daniel by an angel. And the angel's knowledge of future history. Uh, This is in the early years of the Persian monarchy. So you're talking about history that's probably a century and a half distant. And then going further, another century and a half in the context of the revelation itself, where the things that are revealed probably cover another 150 years or so. And the detail with which he reveals that history of the Seleucid Empire in the north and the Ptolemies in Egypt battling back and forth through Palestine and the implications of that for the people of God is staggering. But he didn't know that of himself. He received that as a revelation from God. A couple of other proof texts concerning this. In some ways we need to go no further than the book of Revelation. 
chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. We will see that John uh, frequently will be found in the company of of an angel who is, if you will, his escort through this uh, vision that that John experiences. So here this angel receives uh, this information also by special revelation. It's a revelation that is portrayed as beginning with God the Father, given to the mediator Jesus Christ, which Christ sent and signified by his angel. One other text. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke again. Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. Uh, Remember the context. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth have been uh, upright before the Lord. He is a priest after the order of Abia. And it is his turn by lot to go in and burn the incense. He is in the middle of the incense service. So you remember that service. We talked about it in Revelation chapter 5. He gathered the coal off of the brazen altar. He put it in his censer. He took his censer inside the holy place and laid it upon the golden altar of burnt incense. And he sprinkled the incense on top of it and it goes up as a perfume. And while he's doing this, this is a shadow or a type, the people outside are doing the reality. They are all in the midst of their prayers during this time. While Zacharias is in the midst of this duty, an angel appears to him. Verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel comes and he tells Zacharias future things. Things pertaining to his son, which he couldn't expect since 
they are past childbearing years. And here you probably recognized several Old Testament texts of Scripture in uh, Isaiah and Malachi and so on about this forerunner, this, this forerunner that would come before the Lord Jesus Christ and make the way plain and straight, preparing the way by preaching, reconciling the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, calling people to repentance and turning the heart of the disobedient to the wisdom of uh, the just and so on. So the angel comes and proclaims the fulfillment of prophecy and that this is soon to come to pass. Verse 18. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. You see how Gabriel justifies his knowledge. Basically, Zechariah says, How do I know that these things are going to be true? And so uh, Gabriel justifies his own knowledge and pronouncement I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So here we see a very clear intimation that he had received these things by revelation. And then he says, and I've been sent to declare these good tidings to you. But isn't that striking as if that's explanation enough for the pronouncement? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You might recognize the name. Gabriel, there's some debate about this, but he might be the only angel that ever receives a proper name in the scripture. Some say maybe Michael might be added to that, although there's quite a difference over opinion over whether Michael is an angel properly speaking or the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To tell you the truth, I'm not quite sure how to answer that that question at this point in my, my studies, but uh, Zacharias would recognize the name from the prophecy of Daniel. Indeed, uh, not this exact prophecy, but Gabriel had had the privilege in that ancient time to relay this message concerning future history and the coming of the Messiah to Daniel. And now he has the privilege again to come and declare these things to Zacharias. So we know that at least in these two ways, angels have uh, knowledge. They study the works of God And they have special revelation from God. And whether or not there might be any other ways that they come to the knowledge of things, I I don't know. And some, you should know if you look at Turretin, some theologians further subdivide these broader categories into more particular things. But that's probably enough for our purposes. Now, we have said that angels are great in knowledge. But here we must differentiate them once again from the Most High. They are not omniscient, not even close. Omniscience in the scripture is portrayed as something that is unique to God and that differentiates him 
from all other things. This is an attribute that is peculiar to uh, the Creator Himself. Uh, Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are are full of it, but let me just read to you a, a text here. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Here Jehovah says that if these false gods are able to declare future things, then they will have shown themselves to be gods indeed. But they cannot. Neither uh, angels nor devils, apart from special revelation, can declare future things. So this is at least one area of angelic ignorance. As we've already said, they are not perfectly acquainted with the gospel. They long to look into these things and understand them more thoroughly. Jesus Christ told us that they were ignorant of future things pertaining to his coming. And as I was looking at this, I thought that there was at least one point that might be uh, for our comfort. Uh, And maybe for the comfort of our children, because I do remember what it was like to be a child and to be in my bed at night to scare, uh, afraid of the dark. Angels cannot read our thoughts. In the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, our hearts, our secret thoughts are portrayed as being deceitful and so deceitful that we scarcely know them. Let me read to you, read to you the text. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Once again, this appears to be a property that is peculiar to God. Jeremiah presents our hearts as being deceitful. We scarcely know ourselves you can imagine how hard it would be for another uh, creature to come to some sort of accurate knowledge of us when we have such poor knowledge of ourselves here knowledge of the secret thoughts perfect knowledge of the secret operation of a man's heart is ascribed to God alone he knows us better than we know ourselves But to put it beyond doubt, because it doesn't say that God alone searches the heart, not here, but uh, Solomon does say it in his prayer of the dedication of the temple. He he, um, prays and commends that the people uh, turn their attention to the temple, not in some sort of superstitious way, but as it was a type or a shadow of Christ himself. That when we go to God in prayer, we orient ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have acceptance. And then Solomon says, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and render unto every man according unto all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men. And there you have the limitation. Only God knows the hearts of the children of men. 
in Second Chronicles chapter six thirty, and Jeremiah seventeen nineteen uh, nine and ten. This has two principal uses for us. Once again, I, I hope that you don't uh, find this tedious, but God is greatly glorified in that He alone is omniscient, and not even the greatest of. Um, of the created intellects even approaches remember they are on this side of the divide with us God is infinitely exalted he is high and lifted up he is exalted above the heavens as it is said and these angels although they are greater than us are closer to us if I might describe it like this from our perspective it's something like um, from a valley We've got. We're standing in the valley with our intellect, and the angels up on the top of a mountain. But uh, the Lord's in the space shuttle, and looking down upon us, we look about the same, which is infinitely beneath Him, not even close. He's on the other side of the divide. But I did think that it might be comforting for our young people to know that the devil cannot read your mind. He doesn't know your mind. He doesn't know your thoughts. First, what he probably can do. You know how uh, you know how your parents know you? Sometimes you have secret thoughts concerning things, but your parents sometimes can just look at your face and tell what's going on inside you. Well, the devil can probably do that and even better. He's probably, with his great experience, probably very good at discerning human behavior and knowing the heart out of which it arises. The de- devil is able to suggest things to us through a wide variety of means. He has his ways of communicating with us. And indeed, in the, in the case of possession, we might say that there is a very close contact between that demonic spirit and the mind of the man. The devil is a cunning adversary. But there is this limitation. He cannot read your mind. And this would be a terrifying thought to know that we were thus exposed to our enemy if we believed that he could reach into our secret thoughts, that he could search us to the bottom and know us that intimately he cannot only God knows us perfectly Um, turn with me in uh, the epistle to the Hebrews chapter 4 it's very much like if you think of him as being a great enemy think of two nations waging war one against another and nations in doing so normally devise secret plans for overcoming their enemies and if you can discover your enemy's secret plans you have a good chance of defeating them and we would feel very open to the devil if we thought that he could read our innermost thoughts Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight this is speaking of God but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do 
that language of with of him with whom we have to do is archaic. Basically, it means uh, our business is with God. Everything is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have our business. And that is God himself. In matters of the secret life of the spirit, we have to do with God and not with the devil. And as the uh, text goes on, both before and afterwards, we have to do also with the high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmity so that we need not fear being naked and open before him. But it is God and God alone that searches us to the bottom. And so ultimately it is him with whom we have to do. This is going to be a theme verse because in I hope we can finish on angels and another sermon, maybe two. But ultimately, when it comes to these great beings, this becomes a very important, even a theme verse, because ultimately we have not to do with these principalities and powers, but with the living God who governs them. He is our business. These uh, great creatures do interact with us, but God has been pleased to hide that interaction. So the interaction goes largely the one direction. They interact with us. They do um, act in the world of men in hidden ways. But we have to do not with them, but with God who governs them. So ultimately, it is of very little consequence whether we know exactly what they're doing at any given time. We have to do with the God who rules them. One final doctrinal point. Uh, Angels are volitional and thus moral creatures. Before you could have anything like a will or acts of the will, you must have desire. And we already saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. They desire to look into the things of the gospel. Uh, desire implies discrimination. That you prefer, say, one thing over another thing. And to know these things pertaining to the gospel is desirable to them, preferable to them, no doubt above a great many other things that could be objects of their will. And with desire, with the ability to prefer one thing over another comes the will and the acts of the will. They prefer one thing over another and thus they act according to that inclination of the heart. We are told in the scripture that their actions have a moral quality before God for which they are responsible. And these proof texts are so numerous, we probably don't even need to go to them. But the angels, the holy angels are frequently called holy because they have ever obeyed God and never fallen into the least sin. If you want to see examples of this, Mark 8.38 and Luke 9.26, the angels are called holy. In 2 Peter 2.4, we are told of angels that sinned. For if God spared not the angels that sinned. 
so here their um, uh, their acts of the will are characterized as being sinful, having a negative moral quality. And all of this very happily implies that they are under God's moral government and responsible to him for the things that they do. If you don't take away anything else from from these sermons on angels, I hope that you will take away this. God is greatly glorified in the uh, government of the visible realm. How much more so if you catch a spiritual sight that the creation is probably double what we see. And he governs all. And all these great creatures that are characterized as principalities and powers throne and mights and dominion all of these are under the mediatorial government of our Savior and he also organizes all of their activities for the well-being of the church and that's both good angels who submit willingly and evil angels who submit begrudgingly and yet will do his purpose and his will and cannot thwart his command So I hope that this will be your comfort. And children, I hope that you'll take this comfort with you to your beds when you go to sleep at night. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no devil that can touch you unless the Lord Jesus Christ gives permission. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will only give permission for your spiritual advancement and well-being. And that is a very comforting thought. And remember Job, how those devils are limited. They long to do great wickedness, but they can't do anything to you that will not ultimately be for your well-being. It is God with whom you have to do. And if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are united to Him, you do not need to fear angels or demons. You don't have to fear men or governments. Our fear ultimately is only properly placed in the Lord. Don't fear those who can only harm the body, but fear the living God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And this great being, when we believe in Jesus Christ, intends only our good and our welfare. So children, be at peace. You're well in in the hands of the good God. I thought we might finish with the singing of Psalm 68 to the tune old 44th. Verses 16 through 18. Here our God is greatly glorified in His government of the angels. They are portrayed as being His army and His chariots. What a majestic King. And in verse 18 we have a picture of the mediator ascended upon high, uh, leading captivity captive and triumphant over all the evil powers of this world and of the uh, demonic realm. So let us rise and sing to the glory of our King.